Representative Graves says the ACDC Act, uh, which uh, authorizes uh, companies to do some things, mostly gather intelligence on their attackers outside their networks. Uh, is that a crazy vigilante hackback scheme or a useful modest adjustment to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? Uh, Collecting intelligence is one thing. Hacking back is another. Hacking back is something we've always opposed. It's a violation of federal law now, and I think it should remain a violation of federal law. We don't want uh, vigilantism, if only because of the problem of deconfliction with other people who might be doing it. Episode 269 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and the views expressed here do not represent those of our clients, our law firms, our institutions, our uh, wives or children uh, or grandparents, for that matter. Uh, um, and as I've occasionally said, may not even represent our views three weeks from now. Today, we've got a great uh, interview uh, talking about a new book called The Fifth Domain uh, by Richard Clark and Rob Kanaki. Uh, both of them are here. Richard Clark, um, uh, or Dick, uh, is the CEO of Good Harbor Security Risk Management and formerly the nation's first cyber czar. Uh, uh, Dick, welcome. Thank you. And uh, Rod Kanaki is a senior fellow for cyber policy at the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior research scientist at Northeastern, and former director of cybersecurity at the National Security Council. Rob, great to have you. Thank you. And I'm joined today uh, for the news roundup by Maury Schenk, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues from our London office. Uh, Matthew Hyman, a senior fellow at the National Security Institute, formerly with the Justice Department's National Security Division. Uh, and Gus Hurwitz, a law professor at the University of Nebraska, also affiliated with the International Center for Law and Economics. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and uh, the picador for the day. Um, let's jump right in. Uh, um, the Supreme Court uh, issued a decision that has some implications for people who uh, uh, think that censorship by social media platforms uh, should be subject to the First Amendment. Uh, uh, Gus, um, what did the Supreme Court decide and what does it mean for social media platforms? So my uh, quick snarky gloss is that uh, the court in uh, Manhattan Community Access this past week held that Senator Hawley is a doofus. Um, that might be the controversial way of saying it. Uh, and, court, and I should uh, say looking, that you, you have guaranteed that I'm now going to have to invite Senator Hawley to uh, defend his views uh, on the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, oh, uh, no, Stuart, Stuart, the court has just held that you can <laughs> exercise editorial discretion. And just because this is like a public forum or I can come on and say whatever. You don't need to allow other people on. I don't have to. It's true. State it's, actor. it's true. It's 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 so simple simple is, fairness. Uh, plus, uh, you know, I don't mind interviewing senators. It's fun. Manhattan Community Access, which goes by MNN, is a private company that is contracted by the state of New York. I'm not going to get too much into the details here, um, but they're a community access type channel, and they uh, are denied access to uh, some content, um, and they were sued saying, hey, you're a public forum, uh, you're a state actor, First Amendment applies, you can't discriminate against certain speakers. And the court said uh, that uh, basically a private entity that provides a public forum isn't necessarily a state actor. Since it's not a state actor, it's not subject to uh, First Amendment uh, prohibitions. Um, long and short, uh, this case is interesting uh, more for what it doesn't say and uh, for its reaffirmations of existing doctrine than uh, uh, really what it does say. Uh, important takeaways, uh, if you're thinking about social media, if you're uh, thinking about uh, Justice Kennedy's curious statement in the Packingham case a couple of years ago about social media being the modern public square. Uh, if you're one of those uh, folks who likes to look to the California Pruneyard decision where a, a shopping mall was subject to or held to be subject to free, spree, uh, free speech requirements, this really forecloses both of those. Uh, uh, it forecloses the Pruneyard style argument and the cabins, Packingham's modern public square uh, idea. Just and, and, because and if, I, if, I'm, if I'm reading this right, Right. This is a five to four decision in which all nine justices more or less kill the idea that social media could be subject to First Amendment scrutiny. Am I right? 
Uh, yeah, I think that that's right. Um, and it's a, a long, it goes along with the uh, court's modern uh, contemporary First Amendment uh, jurisprudence. Um, the uh, uh, dissent, there's a uh, wonderful footnote in the dissent uh, where they basically say, look, we used to hold, there was a period in the 1950s where we were holding that um, private entities uh, acting like public forums were subject to uh, uh, First Amendment style requirements. That's in the past. It's not how we think about this anymore. And that's in the dissent. Um, there is a remarkable footnote in the majority that I have no idea how to interpret though, footnote two. Um, footnote two uh, basically points back to the Turner opinion saying that uh, cable companies, uh, uh, the entities, private entities that control the conduits um, uh, can exercise editorial discretion over the content flowing over those conduits. Uh, this related to the government's must-carry requirements um, that they imposed uh, on cable companies in the 1990s. Um, and the, the uh, footnote two says that the court's opinion doesn't address the question of whether or not the government can require uh, companies to carry content. Um, it's only saying that uh, companies that act as public forums aren't state actors subject to uh, um, uh, First Amendment uh, uh, requirements. And it's really curious in a 5-4 opinion, why is that there? Is it best read as a limit on uh, uh, the opinion suggesting perhaps one of those five justices would have uh, uh, overturned Turner? That would be a remarkable outcome. Or is it an invitation uh, to future litigants from these five justices saying, hey, we would love to answer this? That's a really interesting uh, footnote. I'm not sure what it's doing in there and what it indicates. Okay. So it's uh, uh, for First Amendment scholars, it's an interesting question how far the five, this was the most conservative five justices are prepared to go. But uh, if you are aggrieved by Silicon Valley censorship, uh, uh, which has reached new heights now with the a knitting forum declaring that anybody who expresses support for Donald Trump will be uh, kicked off of the forum because um, if you support Trump, you are a white supremacist and white supremacy is hate speech that can be uh, eliminated uh, uh, from the forum because it makes uh, other people uncomfortable and uh, detracts from diversity. I think that was the uh, analysis. So uh, Silicon Valley's uh, epistemic closure continues. Uh, but if you're aggrieved by that, uh, the First Amendment ain't going to get you uh, very far. <laughs> This may or may not get very far. Uh, I, I have to uh, give a shout out to Nick Weaver, who uh, is doing his best to make sure that Facebook's new cryptocurrency, uh, Libra, doesn't get out of the gate. Uh, um, but uh, uh, Matthew, what actually is Libra and uh, is Nick likely to prevail in this uh, battle with Facebook? Well, let's talk about what it is first, and then okay. we can place odds on uh, Mr. Weaver's challenge to Facebook. So the idea is uh, uh, Facebook wants to create a, a cyber currency, but it's not, it's not like Bitcoin uh, in the sense that it is going to be tied to a basket of currencies that you know, are used by our sovereign currencies. So I imagine be tied to the dollar and the euro and the, and, and the Chinese uh, currency and any others that they think are meaningful. Uh, so its value will be pegged to that. It's trying to build a consortium with major payment operators like MasterCard and others. Um, they're all going to have a stake in it. Um, in Nick's piece, he says their stake is minimal. This is really a Facebook operation. And from my perspective, it's clear why Facebook would be interested in doing this because it's a tremendous trove of data, which Facebook runs on data. And so I think that's their incentive to do it. Although they say they're not going to be using the data for advertising purposes. Uh, uh, I, I, I will offer a second and alternative explanation. It's WeChat envy. Yeah. Uh, that uh, uh, WeChat and Alipay mm -hmm. in uh, uh, China have transformed payment uh, there. The street beggars have little uh, uh, three-dimensional barcodes now uh, so that you can just uh, uh, WeChat money to them without having to pull cash out. Uh, and uh, Same thing in Africa. Yeah. Mpeza allows people to text 
uh, amounts of money to each other. So I, I, it may be that uh, uh, this is a, an effort on the part of Facebook to find a new source of revenue uh, uh, from those kinds of uh, micropayments uh, uh, that they can see is sweeping the third world. It may not have much impact here, uh, uh, just as WhatsApp is much more popular outside the United States than in. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I just think it's a logical progression for them. They're, as you said, they're looking for more revenue streams. And whether you think of revenue in terms of actual revenue in dollars or your idea of revenue is data, I think both are meaningful and valuable to Facebook. Uh, what's been remarkable about this is they've barely an, had a public announcement of it. And it seems every uh, heavy hitter in the regulatory world has already sent shots across the bow saying, we don't like this. This scares us. We think this is a bad idea. So Putting aside uh, Mr. Weaver, who seems to be leading the charge against it, um, you also have the EU regulators who came out exactly the way you would expect EU regulators to come out with the continental Europeans saying this is awful, this is a horrible idea, it should never happen. Uh, Mark Carney of the um, of the Bank of England saying, well, let's take a look at this. It, you know, there's some concerns here, but we should keep an open mind. And then you travel to the U.S. where... Uh, you see regulators kind of coming out in different places, some of them saying, let's see what it does. Let's see where they go with it. People like the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell. But then you've also got um, Senator Crapo of the Senate Banking Committee and Maxine Waters on the House counterpart saying we're going to hold hearings pronto. So um, they're not letting much daylight pass uh, before they jump in with their own views of this. Well, you know, I, if you're a regulator, this is the best possible social media Silicon Valley platform to be launching this because there is no more regulatory government whipped organization than Facebook. Everybody wants to beat them up uh, for almost anything they can find. Uh, uh, so if you're a regulator, you say, well, if I find a problem with this, Facebook is just going to say, yes, sir, how high, sir, on the way up. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure to a certain extent, Facebook, as long as they can get this thing across the line, even if it's uh, shackled by all sorts of regulatory requests, it's a great moat they've created for themselves because no one else can you know, meet that bar. No, maybe. Uh, you know, PayPal has been out there a long time, but yeah, this is different from PayPal, yeah. but in ways that uh, may or may not be relevant. Uh, all right. Um, Maury, um, the U.S. has said it's going to potentially limit India's use of H-1B visas. These are the visas for skilled employees. Uh, uh, there may or may not be quotes around skilled. So they, they often are uh, uh, employees who are a good deal cheaper than the Americans that they replace. Uh, and it's a controversial program among uh, um, uh, techies. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, India sends massive numbers of H-1B visa holders to the United States uh, and uh, benefits immensely uh, from the, uh, the program. The U.S. has said, you send 70% of the H-1B visa holders holders today, we're going to knock you down to 15% if you continue down the road of insisting on data localization. Am I right that that's the, the, the proposal? It's a, it's a sort of uh, bare knuckles trade because the, the two have really not much to do with each other and really not that much to do with trade. Yeah, well, that is what is being reported about the proposal. And Absolutely. It's a surprising proposal. We've talked a lot on the podcast about growing data localization battles. War is this, this new front in the war involving immigration law is really surprising. What it is in response to was last year, India adopted, I believe what it's in response to is that India adopted new rules for payment systems providers saying that if they provide service in India, they must store their data only in India except for the foreign leg of the transaction, which wasn't clearly defined. MasterCard and others were upset about this, and the U.S. government has decided to apparently, at least is floating the idea of going to battle over it. Well, if I were – if actually, if, if this is a, only about the payment system data localization, I, I actually have more sympathy for the U.S. position on this because uh, we depend on uh, watching – money flows to find terrorists uh, and terrorist finance. Uh, and if the effect of the uh, Indian law is to say, no, the Americans can't see this, 
you know, I, I think it's it's not at all unfair. I think DHS would be uh, very upset about that. Treasury would be very upset about that. And they would say, well, you know, uh, we don't have to uh, bring a bunch of H-1B visa holders in. Uh, that's that's a more uh, plausible uh, position than saying data localization is protectionism and and therefore we're going to um, uh, attack or, or uh, retaliate in a non-trade area. Yeah, well, and I should say it's my speculation, this connection, but they did adopt this new payment systems providers rule last April. The reports that I've seen suggested that MasterCard is one of the ones com complaining, so it suggests it's not a broader issue. They've been talking about some broader data localization requirements, including in a new data protection law, but I hadn't heard that those had gone into force. So putting all these things together, and I agree with your theory, you know, that may be what's going on. Yeah, well, once, once you start... Cutting back the H-1B visa uh, program by country, we have uh, more than one dispute with India uh, that is pretty immigration focused. They they don't take back the people who are who come here illegally and commit crimes. We 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 uh, uh, decide to uh, kick them out of the country, and uh, we tell the Indians, um, by the way, this guy's coming back. He was he entered the United States illegally, and they say, well, he's, he's not coming here, and so. That unwillingness to take back uh, their nationals, uh, which is a growing problem for the U.S., uh, is something that also could result in H-1B visa caps. Matthew, uh, this is an interesting story. Got a lot of coverage. Probably justified. Apple is cutting its production of uh, iPhones uh, and other stuff uh, out of China. Uh, not all of it, but uh, not even a majority of it, but a, a healthy 15 to 30 percent. Yeah. And it's... Uh it's, you know, it's a product of um, the new tariffs that are being imposed upon China. I think it's also a product of probably some smart people at Apple starting to think about their a risk mitigation strategy for an all-out trade war between uh, China and the U.S. And, and Apple's not the only one that's going through this exercise of thinking about the supply chains and how they're interwoven with China. Um, but, you know, a big part of Apple's profitability over the years has been uh, this Chinese uh, production architecture. That, oh, I thought it was all just the, those damn dongles they sold you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and, and and what's interesting is if you if you wind back a few years when Tim Cook was not the CEO of Apple, this is exactly the thing that he built. Yeah. Uh, this was his, you know, this is what got his ticket punched to the C-suite, which was he was a mastermind of logistics and production and very sophisticated supply chains, and now. Uh, if you are working at the Chamber of Commerce in uh, Vietnam or Mexico or India, you're delighted because you're now in the game for a lot of these production facilities for Apple and other countries. Look, once they build that or supply companies. chain, once they build the capability mm -hmm. uh, in Vietnam or Mexico, which mm -hmm. seem to be the countries they're talking about, uh, uh, yeah, that'll be a permanent advantage for those countries. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I think you're right. It's only smart. It, it, just because Cook built it, is exactly why he would know how much vulnerability they have and what they would need to do if they had to shift that production quickly. You know, in a matter of months, they, they can't possibly do it now. Right. If they've got 30% of their production someplace else, it means there's a, the beginnings of an infrastructure for ramping it up if they have to. Yeah, it's always easier to expand once you've got the beachhead in place. Speaking of beachheads, the FTC is uh, has established a beachhead at the uh, at, at YouTube, uh, Google's YouTube, uh, uh, on KidVid, uh, and there's a lot going on there. Uh, uh, Gus, uh, uh, what are the complaints, and what's the likely regulatory and corporate response? Yeah, so this is a really ugly situation um, all around. Uh, it stems legally from uh, COPPA, um, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, uh, which is a, a law that Congress enacted in 1998 that I think of as a, and it, it really remarkably similar to a mini GDPR for American firms uh, that, that are doing business involving uh, children 13 years uh, or uh, younger. Uh, basically, it uh, uh, prohibits uh, information 
information about children 13 or under from being collected uh, without uh, express uh, uh, permission from parents. It applies to uh, content and uh, businesses that are directing uh, uh, their services towards children or who have actual knowledge of uh, children 13 or under using uh, their services. Uh, so uh, the reality with YouTube, uh, YouTube is uh, apparently the world's best babysitter. Uh, parents hand their kids a tablet and say, hey, watch this uh, cute little uh, video. And then uh, the algorithm takes over. And uh, 20, 30 minutes later, you come over and uh, you see your children watching a video of uh, some uh, uh, crazy dystopian computer generated uh, white nationalist uh, islamophobic uh, cartoon so alex is- alex jones has a children's ca- channel well, it's even worse than that because it's all algorithmically generated. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a really dystopian nightmare uh, rabbit hole that uh, children can get pulled down. Um, and uh, the COPPA the, the, uh, allegations, what, uh, so we, we've been talking about and looking at uh, uh, these concerns for a while. To their credit, YouTube has been trying to uh, deal with these. They have a separate YouTube Kids product uh, that uh, is uh, designed to be more suitable for children. There's also been concern about uh, 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 child predators and pedophiles commenting on videos targeted towards children. So uh, cutting off comments for uh, videos that are targeted to children and stuff like that. Um, but it's a, a, a we have a legal backdrop of COPPA, which is a very blunt instrument. Uh, our, and there's uh, a long discussion, long history of COPPA, because when you uh, require companies to design your products uh, based upon uh, actual use that you can't control by children under 13, well, this is an impossible design requirement. There, there's a serious heckler's veto sort of concern here. Um, but uh, it's the law that we have, and it's a very powerful uh, law that the FTC enforces. What do we do here? Well, uh, the best advice companies can be given, the FTC, to their credit, has been fairly judicious in how they've enforced COPPA. They uh, have looked for really bad actors, companies that have clear problems, are clearly violating the law or are causing real problems. Uh, companies need to just do their best. They need to be aware of what's happening. If there are problems with uh, children accessing content or the ecosystem uh, that evolves around a uh, set of content or services that children access, you got to do something about it or uh, the FTC is going to come after you. Uh, and it appears... Google is trying to do something about it, and they have been trying to do something about it. It's unclear whether or not they uh, have been proactive enough in it, uh, whether or not they have gone ahead of this problem and uh, said, hey, we need to clean up this ecosystem. Children are using this in problematic ways. It's being used to get in touch with children in problematic ways. We need to redesign this product. Um, Or whether or not uh, the FTC has been investigating them for two or three years, and this investigation is now coming to ahead and realizing that this investigation was coming to a head, uh, YouTube has said, okay, time for us to make changes now. Uh, we don't know which of those dynamics is playing out here. Uh, if it's the former, shame on the FTC for uh, uh, using COPPA to go after a company that is trying to get ahead of a legitimately hard social technological problem. It's not Google's fault that parents use YouTube as a babysitter. Or if Google has been ignoring this problem until the FTC has come after them, then shame on uh, YouTube and Google for really uh, allowing a very problematic uh, uh, ecosystem to exist on their platform. So I, I, I want to turn to the good news story of the uh, uh, of the week, uh, which is that uh, all that social credit rating uh, system that we've been reading about, it's the end of the world, it's uh, a dark mirror, it's uh, going to transform the world, and before we know it, we'll all be subject to it as well. It looks like it might have a few problems. Uh, Maury? Well, uh, Stuart, I'm not as skeptical as you are. Um, I just was in China last week. I didn't see much social credit system either myself. But the report was a Bloomberg report about interviews in the city of Suzhou where it suggested that the social credit program there called Osmanthus, named after a flower, fittingly or not, is just people aren't aware of it. But there was also some interesting statistics that said 
you know, there of the 13 million people in the city, one and a half million were above the baseline score. Almost everybody was at the baseline score, but about 5,000 were under it. And what I think they're going to use these social credit programs for is really trying to restrict people who would be otherwise inclined to misbehave. Chinese in general are pretty supportive of the government, obedient, and the Chinese, you know, the government is trying to go after a small number of dissidents. And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, these, you know, restrictions on not taking plane flights, not, um, you know, not taking high-speed trains, and even much more significant things are being put into place. And, you know, that ability to do those targeted restrictions, I think, is the value of this. That's not to say the program doesn't have restriction, uh, some uh, problems. Uh, there's suggestions that you know facial recognition is not as good or as accurate as they say it is, and that's probably right. But I think this is a significant program that's in its early days, and we will see more of it. All right. So it, it could be that this is a program where getting it out is the victory, uh, applying it to people that everybody dislikes uh, and a relatively small minority is also uh, a victory. And they can fine tune it and start to uh, making uh, differences in the behaviors of elites uh, uh, years from now uh, once they've got the basic principles and infrastructure in place. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's the story of this kind of innovation. You know, you get it out there, you see what works, what doesn't, and then you keep refining it. And they they have the tools to do it. There's some, you know, some of the facial, the best facial recognition companies in the world are in China, SenseTime in Hong Kong and Face++ in, in uh, mainland China. And they are developing their technology very quickly. And I expect that to continue. And I expect this government to make use of it. Okay. One update before we turn to the interview. Uh, uh, we mentioned that uh, uh, LabCorp and Quest uh, had serious uh, uh, breaches uh, of medical information uh, and that they were breached because of uh, their connection to the American Medical Collection Agency, the guys who call you up and say, why haven't you paid your $5 leftover uh, bill? Um, a, and uh, it turns out that uh, American Medical Collection Agency and its parent uh, won't be doing that anymore. In fact, if you want to call them, uh, uh, call them at home because they've gone bankrupt uh, as a result of this breach. Uh, um, uh, so uh, we'll be talking a little bit about the incentives to uh, to maintain security. And I'm sure that Dick Clark and Rob Kanaki will say, see, this is the kind of thing that ought to happen more often and we will have better cybersecurity. Yeah. Okay, let's talk to uh, Dick Clark and Rob Kanaki about their new book, which is, is it out yet or is it almost out? It's uh, available on July 16th and you can pre-order now. Excellent, excellent. Uh, the book is called The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, July 16th is when it's available. Uh, Dick, I, uh, I don't know if you know this. I, I uh, wrote a book that talked about cybersecurity uh, and, and, and my time at DHS. Uh, and I, I had a one-sentence description of you. Have you seen this? No. Oh, God. Well, um, don't take it personally. I, I, I said cybersecurity. No, I've learned not to. Okay. Cybersecurity regulation had been talked about for years. The Bush administration floated the possibility in 2002. Or to be more precise, Richard Clark floated the idea. Clark, I say, was a flamboyant bureaucratic warrior camouflaged by the dress and haircut of a high school math teacher. Now, if you if you see somewhere in there a certain envy that you still have enough hair to cut, they might be right. But uh, I, I, I couldn't resist. Uh, I, I have to say I kind of admire your flamboyance as a bureaucratic warrior, and I think it shows in the book, uh, uh, which is a really good, well, it, it is a detailed effort to say what's the current state of cybersecurity in the United States and to address all the hard policy issues that we're uh, uh, struggling with. And it has, uh, uh, in tribute to your uh, buccaneering spirit, uh, a solution for practically every one of the problems you identify. I, I disagree with about half the solutions, but uh, it takes some cojones to put forward uh, uh, solutions. So um, uh, uh, don't be misled by the conversation to come, which is, you know, going to include a lot of disagreement. Uh, I, I actually think this is a 
good book for anybody who wants to know where do we stand today on cybersecurity. Well, I think Rob Kanaki and I, both from our times in the White House, which unfortunately probably for us didn't overlap, learned that you don't bring a, a problem to the boss without bringing a solution. Yes. Uh, I learned that from uh, both Clinton and Bush. And so we have solutions. I think the last count is something like 80 uh, solutions in the book. Uh, but basically what we've done um, is to go back and look at the book we wrote together 10 years ago, Cyber War, uh, which was a groundbreaker uh, in many ways. And at the time, we were criticized by people. It was one famous review in Wired magazine that said something to the effect of file under fiction uh, because we talked about nation states uh, fighting cyber wars uh, and destruction uh, of networks, uh, and not just uh, stealing data. We talked about attacks on critical infrastructure. Uh, and uh, at the time, 10 years ago, uh, at least for some people, that seemed hyperbolic and uh, fictional. Well, we were deep still in the magazine or consensus, which is that this technology is just going to uh, liberate us all. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, uh, you quote from John Perry Barlow about, uh, you know, you uh, the, the old governments and their empires of steel and meat have no dominion over uh, cyberspace. Uh, that was still certainly at Wired and, and broadly in the country, the consensus. Well, it wasn't our consensus 10 years ago. And I think Rob uh, and I turned out to be right. And so this book is, in one instance, a, a way of saying, na 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 we were yep. right. Um, but it also uh, is a book that says, look, the world is very different uh, now than it was 10 years ago. Um, and one of the differences um, is that there are some companies, uh, rather a large number of companies in some industries, that seem to have gotten it right. Uh, Ten years ago, we would have said, you can hack any company. Uh, and I don't think we say that anymore. Yeah, you, 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 that's, your, uh, that's, that's the good news in the book. Uh, and it's right up, up front. Uh, uh, you say, I think there are companies that now will say, or that now will say, uh, are not likely to be hacked, and big banks mainly. Uh, and uh, um, I frankly find that implausible. Uh, it's, it's true today. Uh, uh, you can secure a corporate network, but can you secure the CEO's IoT devices at home? I don't think so. Now, I wasn't talking about the CEO, CEO's home. I was talking about the corporations. But there's, you know, NASA just got compromised. It was a story we didn't talk about uh, because they had one Raspberry Pi on their network that became the uh, mechanism by which uh, a, a state actor uh, took terabytes of data out of their system. Stuart, companies are getting hacked all the time. That's not news. The news is the dogs that aren't barking. Uh, and what we discovered is that there are dogs that aren't barking. Uh, there are companies that have either achieved uh, a state of cybersecurity where they can't be damaged or uh, if someone gets into their network, they can't can't get very far. Uh, this is cyber resilience. Well, and, and that is, I mean, it, it's clear you can't keep people out because uh, everybody, uh, the, the people who work for you, the contractors you have don't value cybersecurity the way the bank does. Um, and so you have to, tr you have to hunt the uh, attackers when they get in your system. We just, uh, Rob and I just did a podcast on my Future State podcast. Um, with uh, Dmitry Olpovich from CrowdStrike, who was the guy who came up with the, the original line, there are two kinds of companies, uh, those that have been hacked and know it and those that have been hacked and don't know it. Uh, and we put it to him that there's a third kind of company now, uh, those companies that aren't being hacked or that can uh, contain the, the hack very well when they occur. Uh, and Dimitri, who, by the way, had a great week. Yes, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I hesitate to ask what his net worth is these days. <laughs> I think it begins with a B. Um, <laughs> congratulations, Dimitri. Well-deserved. Uh, he said, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There, there is now a, a third category of company, and those companies are being very quiet about who they are. Uh, I happen to be on the board of one of them, I think. Um, you know, if you spend enough money and you get the governance systems right, uh, and you get good people running your networks, uh, you can achieve a fair level of defense. 
with existing technologies. We don't need to invent uh, some new wonderful defense mechanism. Uh, you have to buy a lot of them. Uh, big organizations that achieve this kind of security have 50, 60, 70 different uh, tools. tools, applications, uh, systems running. They have to integrate them. They have to keep them up to date. They have to buy new ones when new threats uh, appear. And they have to be able to do all this quickly. Uh, and there's, there's, there's an entire venture capital industry based on the assumption that the banks will buy anything new. Well, not anything. Uh, <laughs> but it seems to be working. And that's one of the discoveries. There are many things that are different from our original book 10 years ago. Uh, but that was the big one. All right. Uh, I, and you would not include NSA and CIA in those um, uh, list of entities that are currently defeating all efforts to hack them? Obviously, they have been hacked in some fashion. Well, they have been hacked in some fashion, and it's unclear to me whether it's the, the organizations that were hacked uh, or whether contractors working for them uh, were sloppy. Uh, I think it's the latter. Um, but, of course, it's difficult in an unclassified uh, document to describe exactly what's going on. So you, one of your uh, policy prescriptions is that uh, in order for the government to get better security, uh, there need to be harsher consequences for contractors who have bad cybersecurity. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, I think in general, uh, and not just with cybersecurity, uh, government contractors in the aerospace industry and in the cyber business uh, screw up all the time. Uh, and their reward for screwing up is that they get a contract to unscrew themselves. Uh, that, you know, as a taxpayer, that just hurts me. Uh, and I think that uh, that's going to continue to be the case uh, until organizations that can be you know, demonstrated to have screwed up uh, pay a higher cost than they pay now. They pay no cost now. Uh, they actually get rewarded for, for but screwing if, up. if there were contractors that could demonstrate they, they fall into the uh, – um, the, the Richard Clark not hackable uh, category, uh, uh, they should be able to compete very well against the ones that are saying, you know, I can be less hackable if you give me more money. Well, I'd, I'd just like to see um, a greater competition. I'd like to see punishment uh, for failure. Uh, other organizations, other systems have punishment for failure. Uh, U.S. government procurement doesn't uh, see the F-35. And we're calling here uh, for some action. Uh, we can debate about what that specific action should be. But when I, um, a contractor is defending a network, a government network, uh, and it is responsible, the contractor is responsible for that government agency being hacked, there should be a penalty. I don't disagree with you. I have a slightly cynical view that the people who will be punished most severely are the people whose uh, um, failures embarrass the uh, uh, the general who funds the program rather than the ones who cause the most national security damage. But uh, uh, apart from that, uh, it does make sense to uh, to worry about this. Let me uh, turn to resilience, which is your other theme, which is that resilience is possible, it's necessary, uh, um, and uh, I. I, I was a little unsure. There, there were some things you talked about that I thought were really interesting. And, and Rob, feel free to jump in. Uh, you talk about the uh, uh, MITRE attack mat matrix and uh, a variety of other things that, uh, if fully implemented, would um, produce a more resilient uh, corporate structure. Uh, what do you think are the things that are most likely to make uh, a difference here? Well, let, me, let me ask Rob to jump in. Sure. So when, when we looked at this, we, we noted the number of technologies needed. We noted the advances in things like machine learning that have really enabled better cybersecurity over the last decade. But the thing that we really focused on as being the greatest evolution in terms of cybersecurity was a white paper. And it was a white paper written by a bunch of guys at Lockheed Martin uh, that introduced the concept of the kill chain, right? The idea that it's not just about are you hacked or are you not hacked? Can an adversary get in? But can they get in and get out or get in and achieve the objective that they wanted? And it's this kind of thinking that I think we really felt was what's revolutionized uh, cybersecurity over the last decade. And it's spreading that concept beyond the defense world and beyond the financial world, 
uh, into the rest of the economy and the rest of critical infrastructure that I think is probably the most important thing we need to do to build societal resilience against cyber threats. And that's pretty much the common wisdom these days. It's a long time since people relied on firewalls to keep bad guys out uh, or had networks that were, as the, uh, some uh, candy was advertised, uh, crunchy on the outside with a soft, chewy in center. That's that's pretty much what people do. How is it that uh, uh, the attack matrix and the kill chain have changed how people do that? So, I mean, I would first stop and dispute the idea that this is the new conventional wisdom. It may be the conventional wisdom within cybersecurity circles. It's certainly not what has permeated out to the wider policymaking community, out to Congress, and out to corporate America. I think more often than not, if you asked an executive in a C-suite of a Fortune 500 company whether it was possible for them to defend themselves and whether they should be responsible for defending themselves against nation-state adversaries, they would parrot some version along the lines of, I've got 400,000 employees and a million computers, and there's no way I can protect all of those against the Russians. And so from that perspective, I think this is still a concept, an idea that is not fully accepted, let alone within the cybersecurity community, within the IT community, or in the broader national security community. So the, the it done properly, uh, what do you think uh, it requires? So, I mean, I think the most basic thing that, that we saw was, A, you have to understand the philosophy, and then B, you need to invest against it. When we talk to companies that we think are successfully managing the adversaries day in and day out, the thing that really separates them more than anything else is the amount of money that they're willing to spend. What percentage of their IT budget are they putting to cybersecurity? If that's not a number anybody's ever calculated, if they have no idea what they might include on one side of the ledger or the other, they're going to be in pretty sorry shape. Now, that's not to say that spending alone makes you secure. You can spend billions of dollars and still be insecure if you haven't invested it properly. But, but the most important thing to realize this vision is to get those dollars up and to recognize the value of what you're protecting in so, the network. So what are table stakes in, if you're a, uh, an enormous financial institution, what are table stakes on security these days? Well, if you look at it as a percentage uh, of the IT spend, uh, and I know there's a definitional issue here. What's, mm -hmm. what's cybersecurity and what's IT? Uh, given that, nonetheless, if you, if you look at it as a percentage of IT spending, if you're at 3%, and we find a lot of, in my consulting practice uh, with Rob, we find a lot of companies at 3%. They're, they're hacked. <laughs> they've, already mm -hmm. been, they've already been hacked. I know this is a, um, this is a rough metric. Uh, and it's not precise, and surely there are exceptions. But more often than you would think, if you find a company that, as Rob said, doesn't know what it's spending in terms of percentage of IT on cybersecurity, uh, or it's spending uh, at 3%, 4%, they're in trouble. Uh, if you find a company that's at 8 10%, uh, one of two things has happened. Either they have a good governance structure, uh, that's caused them to get to that level, or they were recently hacked, or, or they were hacked <laughs> yesterday, you know, um, and then they had the then they opened the checkbook. We found um, companies that were at uh, 15, 16, 17 percent, yeah, okay, uh, which is I think ex extraordinary, but they're there. Uh, some of them uh, who really worry about this issue, and it, the spending flows from the governance model. Uh, if the if uh, we talk about uh, in the book, we talk about the NotPetya attack. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the, the GRU, the Russians, attacking Ukraine. And, and then everybody who paid taxes in Ukraine, right? Well, or at least had ME doc uh, software. Uh, and so it spread out around the world, um, collateral damage, unintended consequences. Well, uh, do you think it was unintended? I do. Okay. I do. Uh, I don't think they intended to take down the Danish, the world's largest uh, shipping container company that happens to be Danish. I, I don't think that was in their scope. Um, but in any event, it doesn't really matter that they did. And right now, I think the current estimate uh, of uh, insured damage exceeds $10 billion. Um, that's extraordinary. 
But what we found was there were a lot of American companies in Ukraine that were hit by this attack, and it bounced off. Uh, and we talked to the to the CEO uh, of one of these companies and, and talked to the CISO who works for him. And we said, uh, so how do you explain that it didn't hit you? Uh, and the CISO uh, said, well, I have an open checkbook from the CEO, and I report directly uh, to the CEO uh, all the time. And I don't have to go through the CIO. I don't have to go through the in-house general counsel or the CFO. Mm -hmm. When I really need something, I call him. He says, do it. Uh, and we don't worry about a budget. And we don't worry about a, an annual process for procurement. Well, the, well the, the, the success in that pet shop for companies that, that resisted it was, I think, just a disciplined and aggressive patching schedule, wasn't it? Was, it? it was more than that. It, it, it was a patching program. Uh, it was a segmentation program. Mm -hmm. It was endpoint detection software. Uh, it was uh, vulnerability, continuous monitoring for vulnerability assessment. It's a whole series of things. But they cost money. Uh, and companies that have a good governance structure where there's someone on the board who cares about this and where the CEO cares about this and where the CISO's reporting channel uh, doesn't end at the CIO, that kind of company with a good governance model tends to be the same kind of company that has the high level of spending and tends to be the company that is resilient. So you, you guys also, uh, cutting against the general grain of... 30 years of uh, uh, cybersecurity policymaking, failed policymaking, but still, um, uh, come out in favor of regulation. Uh, uh, you, you say, yes, there's nudge regulation. We, we sort of like shove regulation. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, you have a, a variety of suggestions here. Um, uh, what I guess I thought I would ask you to do is uh, what what regulatory regime do you think is most appropriate to improve, to get everybody to the point where they are far less or maybe unhackable? I think what we call for, you know, we, we, we go back in history. Uh, and when I wrote the, the first national plan for cybersecurity, uh, it said we eschew regulation. Now, that was 1998 under Clinton, right? And then I wrote the, the first national strategy uh, for cybersecurity under Bush that said we eschew regulation. Um, and now we have a president who, by the way, I don't think he knows it, but he's got a document out there that kind of says regulation might be possible. I don't think he realizes what. So he I says. was going to ask you if you, are, that's that's as close as you can get to saying good things about the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pr pr pretty pr pretty much. Um, but I think what we have, despite presidents, with the exception of the current incumbent, who may or may not know what he's talking about, uh, presidents saying we eschew regulation. We've got a lot of regulation at the federal level. It's a hodgepodge. Uh, and what we say is, let's try to rationalize it and normalize it. Uh, and if there are differences um, between and among regulations at the federal level, let them be intentional uh, and not a result of uh, serial policymaking by people who really don't talk to each other very much. Uh, we'd like to have a simpler regulatory structure uh, that looks at all the existing, and I think we list about 20 uh, in the book, looks at all the existing federal regulations and tries to have a consistent policy on each of those issues uh, and tries to be modern regulation that, that talks about endpoints and goals rather than telling you how to turn the, uh, the screw. Yeah, although... You know, I, uh, your prescription about what people should be doing was a lot of endpoints, a lot of inputs, and only a few security endpoints. Because measuring security endpoints, unless you say, if you're hacked, we will take uh, uh, ten percent of your global revenue, um, it, it's very hard to find an endpoint other than that that uh, uh, that you can regulate to. Yeah, uh, I think there are times when it's perfectly okay to say you can be hacked, and then we'll punish you. And then there are other times, depending upon the industry, uh, like healthcare, uh, like perhaps electric power, uh, where you don't really want to ever be hacked very much. And, and penalizing people after the fact is insufficient.
Right, I, because they'll just declare bankruptcy. Well, as, because uh, they'll be dead, uh, yes, you know, in the case well, of healthcare. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, or, all right, well, let me ask a couple of questions about that. Uh, there, there's You spend a little bit of time on the idea of BGP, uh, Border Gateway Protocol, uh, hijacking in which uh, – uh, especially the Chinese, but others, the Russians and, and, and a variety of other countries have um, insisted uh, uh, that traffic to or from particular countries or particular uh, IP addresses should go through them, even though it's not the most convenient uh, route uh, and it's not the route that was uh, uh, suggested. They just basically send a new route forward and it gets accepted for sometimes months. Um, a, and one of the participants in some of those uh, uh, incidents lasting months sending traffic to uh, uh, to Beijing that was bound from the United States or Canada to say uh, Japan or Korea um, uh, were some China mobile uh, points of presence in the United States uh, um, what should the U.S., especially in the current climate, be doing about that should the FCC be investigating or regulating or just ousting those points of presence uh, because of these incidents well, I think if you go back again to the original national strategy and national plan, um, they both called out 20 years ago uh, the fact that the Border Gateway Protocol, which is this obscure uh, thing in, tele uh, in the telecoms infrastructure, uh, is very important uh, and is insecure. 20 years ago, the national plan said we have to have authentication uh, for updates uh, to the Border Gateway Protocol. And what we found it was this great study um, done by an Israeli university and uh, the Naval Postgraduate School uh, that listed an enormous number of instances where Russia or China uh, had poisoned the, mm -hmm. the, the BGP tables, uh, which anybody can do if you have access to them. Uh, there's no authentication required. Uh, and rerouted traffic through Russia and China. Um, now, you can guess what they did while it was being rerouted through Russia or China. It doesn't take a lot of imagination. We think there's a specific regulation there that three presidents have called for that no one has actually implemented, uh, and that is to ask, uh, and if they won't do it, uh, require uh, the carriers uh, to put in place an authentication system. Uh, so that Russia can't simply say, oh, all Pentagon traffic, come to me. Uh, <laughs> if there was an authentication system in place, that would be much more difficult. You know, if I have to say, I know you don't want to give them credit, but this is an administration for a variety of other reasons that's more likely to do that than any we've seen in the last 30 years. Tell me when they do it. Okay, I'll give you a call. Uh, we'll, we'll get you back on the line. Uh, uh, the other thing that I noticed that is different in this book is uh, Department of Homeland Security gets a certain amount of respect. I don't think it got any respect uh, 10 years ago. I don't remember re reading about it in your book, but it was uh, a, a kind of viewed as the 99-pound weakling of uh, cybersecurity. Uh, now you treat it as potentially the solution to some of the problems of how do we regulate and uh, how do we build a uh, core of IT workers that can do security. Well, we do now have a cybersecurity agency. We've been calling for it a cybersecurity agency again for 20 years. Uh, we do now have a cybersecurity agency uh, at Homeland. Um, it's not everything we want it to be, but it exists. And and Rob worked, um, before he was in the White House, Rob worked at the Homeland Security Department uh, and knows all of its uh, foibles and problems. But uh, Rob, you've been an advocate for giving it more uh, authority. Yeah, and I, I think at this point, we've given it more authority. What we haven't done is given it more resources. I was just looking at how the new CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, matches up to the other components like TSA and SEMA and the Secret Service. And while going back to the Obama administration, cybersecurity has been identified as the number one, number two on par with terrorism as the biggest concern of the Department of Homeland Security. The budget tells a very different story. We have about $700 million a year going to the Department of Homeland Security's cyber mission at CISA versus 10 and $15 billion for agencies like Customs and ICE. 
So from the perspective of does DHS have the mission? Yes. Does it have the budget? No. I, I think the budget is where we're falling short. I mean, right now, you could argue that J.P. Morgan is probably spending more to protect J.P. Morgan than the Department of Homeland Security is spending to protect all of the United States. And so I, I think we have a problem with scale when it comes to DHS, not one of the authorities. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with you, and I'm sure J.P. Morgan is pushing a billion. Uh, it, uh, it was it was over 500 million uh, years ago, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and so yes, I, I, uh, the uh, cybersecurity uh, and infrastructure protection agency uh, would be better off with J.P. Morgan's uh, cybersecurity budget than with their own, which is kind of sad. As we roll down, uh, in order to give everybody a feel for your uh, uh, your views, I have a, a, a cybersecurity policy pop quiz uh, in the McLaughlin and Company style in which uh, I will ask you to give me a uh, one or two word answer to several questions, and I'll tell you if you're right or wrong. <laughs> um, uh, attribution uh, uh, in cyberspace, crucial strategic tool or delusion? Uh, uh, Rob, start, start us off. Crucial strategic tool. Dick? Yeah, I agree that most of the time, probably 90% of the time, um, the United States government can achieve attribution. You are right. Okay, lawful intercept encryption, uh, 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 insisting on uh, encryption that can, in in the event of a warrant, be uh, uh, made available to government. Uh, uh, Good idea or bad? Uh, We've tried this for so many decades, beginning with clipper chip. Uh, My baby. Yeah, I know. It was a bad idea then. It's a bad idea now. Rob? I'm just sticking dick on that one. All right. Uh, You're wrong, but uh, but you're uh, in the majority. Vulnerability equity process in which uh, most of the uh, flaws found by uh, NSA uh, are uh, reported to industry rather than used to exploit against our foreign adversary. Do we need uh, uh, more disclosure or less? More, we more vulnerabilities discovered and used and then disclosed much faster. Next generation antivirus all is right. picking up a these straddle, things all dick. the time. It's a whole new world. Well, I think Rob had a lot to do with uh, creating the vulnerabilities equity process. Um, I, I think it's a good process. Uh, I don't think it has been implemented well. I think uh, the the NSA review group that you remember Obama appointed and I was on. The five guys. The five guys uh, recommended that uh, the default setting uh, be rapid uh, dissemination uh, of the information about uh, vulnerabilities. I don't think that's happened. Yeah, that and and you guys are wrong. The vulnerability ex- equity process is the most overhyped policy development in uh, cybersecurity today. Yeah. All right. China's Great Firewall, uh, where they actually inspect all the traffic coming across, uh, in comparison to the United States, where we have no ability to do that. Uh, is that a strategic advantage or a disadvantage for China? Well, whether it is an advantage or a disadvantage, we're not going to do it, and we shouldn't. Rob. Not a cybersecurity tool. It's actually a censorship tool under the guise of cybersecurity. All right. Uh, I think you guys are, are uh, close to right on that. Uh, it, uh, it it may or may not be an advantage to them, but it's not something that we can easily implement. Uh, give a, giving away control of ICANN uh, uh, to uh, – I can. Um, is that the last gasp of the magaziner consensus uh, uh, on autopilot, or was that multilateralism at its best? Uh, Rob? Uh, one of the prouder things I was part of in the Obama administration and something I would gladly do it again, and we should have done sooner. No, I agree with that. Yeah, no, you guys are wrong. That they, 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 we're getting nothing out of that, and uh, now that everybody hates uh, Silicon Valley, the uh, intellectual underpinnings of giving it away were uh, have, have eroded. All right, uh, the, Representative Graves says the ACDC Act, uh, which uh, authorizes uh, companies to do some things, mostly gather intelligence on their attackers outside their networks, uh, is that a crazy vigilante hackback scheme or a useful, modest adjustment to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? Uh, Rob? If you read the act, it'll show you that it's trying to be responsible. And in being responsible, it makes it all but impossible that a company could ever hack back. Okay. Dick? Yeah. The, uh, collecting intelligence is one thing. Hacking back is another. Hacking back is something we've always opposed. And it's a violation of federal law now. And I think it should remain a, a violation of federal law. We don't 
want uh, vigilantism, if only because of the problem of deconfliction with other people who might be doing it. So I, I think you guys are suffering from an inability to actually uh, live up to the courage of your convictions. If you think the Graves Act actually is responsible uh, and you think that probably it won't be implemented very much, uh, then I think you need to endorse it. Uh, and let's see uh, what comes of it. OK. Uh, and DHS, I think we've already uh, discussed this. Incompetent hack or best hope for government cybersecurity improvement? Uh, Rob? I greatly admire what the team at CISA has been able to do. And if they get the resources, they are our best hope. Dick? It's a good foundation. Uh, we need to build a lot more on top of it. Okay. Oh, you guys are such good sports uh, to let me play uh, McLaughlin uh, uh, with you. And uh, I, I, I want to say again, this, is, this book is the best statement I've seen uh, uh, of where we are on cybersecurity policy. It has the cojones to actually put forward all of these uh, uh, uh policy prescriptions, which nobody is going to agree with 100%. Uh, and uh, uh, I really admire your ability to put forward credible policy uh, uh, solutions to the problems you identify. And I, I greatly admire, if I can't quite join your optimism about where we are and where we're going on cybersecurity. Uh, uh, but thanks to Dick Clark. Thanks to Rob Kanaki. Uh, uh, and thanks also to Maury Shank and Matthew Hyman and uh, Gus Horowitz for joining me on this uh, episode 269 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you've got a guest to suggest, send us uh, in the, uh, the uh, nomination. And if they come on, we will give you one of our coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Uh, which, uh, Dick, I've now uh, given to you. Uh, uh, and uh, Rob, yours is in the mail. Send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Follow me on uh, uh, Twitter at Stuart Baker if you want to uh, see what we're thinking about covering this week. Uh, I've been pretty good about uh, putting those stories out. Uh, um, and if you like what you're uh, listening to and you haven't gone and rated the show, it's time to do that uh, because the ratings are what drive traffic to us and uh, what um, get us out of bed every Monday morning morning to do this. Uh, coming up, we're going to have Harvey Rishikoff, who is just about the biggest smartass in government, uh, 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 me, uh, and Joyce Carell uh, talking about supply chain security. Paul Shar and Greg Allen from CNS will talk about China, artificial intelligence, and other tech, uh, tech issues. We're trying to get uh, uh, Glenn Reynolds from Instapendent to come on and talk about his new book about uh, social media censorship. Um, uh, thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael B. Beaver, our assistant and editor. I'm Stuart Baker, host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.